This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. Ellen Everett Hopeman, author of The Real Witches of New England, History, Lore, and Modern Practice, joins me, your host, Eric Render King Fisk, on this episode of The Metaphysical Connection, recorded for October 20th, 2018. My special guest this week is Ellen Everett. Do I have it correct? Um, Hopman. That's correct, Ellen Everett Hopman. All right, and you're uh, you're on the show this week to talk about a wide range of things, um, but most specifically your most recent book, um, uh, "The Real Witches of New England." And yeah, I, I, it just came out. Yeah, it just it, ju- yeah. it just came out. It's available. Um, uh, on Amazon via um, uh, paperback and Kindle. Um, it is out on Kindle, correct? Uh, whatever, yeah, whatever Amazon sells there. Okay. Uh, I, 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 I'd like to get started and uh, talk to you about your background. Um, tell us about yourself and uh, how, how did you... Uh, how did you get interested in, in herbalism, for starters? Well, that happened a long time ago when I was a teenager, and uh, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. I don't exactly understand it myself, but um, when I was a teenager, I, I had this uh, just overwhelming desire to know how to survive out in the wilderness. I just had this idea, and um, I wanted to be able to go out and find things you know, that, that I could wildcraft and use for medicine and Nobody, there was nobody around me that was doing that, and very few books, and there was no internet, you know. It was just this impulse that I had from inside of me. And um, when I was in college, I actually lived in a teepee for two summers, and I made the teepee with my boyfriend at the time. We made it by hand. We sewed the whole thing by hand. Uh, So I was actually living out in the woods, and, you know, being college students, we didn't have much money. So uh, we started wildcrafting, and you know, we, luckily we didn't poison ourselves, or you know, nothing bad happened. But we would we would literally just walk around. This was in um, upstate New York, and we would just walk around and look for edible things. And that's kind of how it started. And um, at one point, we were gathering so much that we actually started taking things to the local uh, co-op, the food co-op, and they were selling things that we were gathering, which was kind of interesting, um, elderberries and things like that. Um, so that's, I guess that's really how it started. And it was, it was just an instinctive um, feeling that I had that I wanted to know this. I think that that's an amazing story. Um, you just, it, 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 Would you say that your craft or your trade actually found you more than anything else. Well, I'm, you know, I'm willing to bet that a lot of people have this because it has to be genetic. It has to be, especially women. I mean, throughout history for millions of years, women did most of the agriculture. And in the world, women still do most of the agriculture. And, you know, women have always gone out and gathered roots and berries and um, foraged. And I bet if people paid more attention to, to their own instincts, you know, I bet a lot of people would be into this. The thing is that now everyone is so distracted, you know, by cell phones and video and TV, you know, <laughs> that people are people are forgetting to go within. I mean, I, I'm lucky in that when I grew up, we didn't even have television most of the time, so I read a lot of books and spent a lot of time outside. And, of course, as a kid, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, everybody was outside. It was very different than today. You know, we, we were outside until late at night running around, um, you know, I was just being part of nature was always it was just where I felt at home. 
And uh, I t- it worries me that the kids that are coming up today don't have that. I think there's a real nature deprivation going on. Um, just, do you see that as well? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I could, I could. One of the reasons why I, I started this podcast was to sort of examine what's going on in modern society and how we've so right. moved so, so far away from nature and spiritualism, and everything has to be digital. Everything has to be electronics. Everything has to be like a like a like a, a, a huge show. Everything has to be a media event. And meanwhile, right. we, we're surrounded. We're surrounded by so many wonderful, incredible things, and we sort of tend to either ignore it or destroy it. We have this beautiful mm-hmm. field here somewhere. I got an idea. Let's pay. Let's let's clear cut it, pay, pave it over, and put up a big box store. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a huge concern of mine. You know, oh, yeah. especially with um, urban sprawl, and um, every town has to be so much just like the other one to the point where it's like we're we're becoming a homogenous. I think is the word I'm looking for. Um, you mentioned something. I think it, you um, you called it wildcraft. Is wildcrafting? Yeah. What, just for our Wild- li- yeah, go ahead for our listeners. What is that? Yeah, wildcrafting just means that you go out into the woods. I mean, I live in the woods, so there's very little sunlight around the house, so I can't grow a lot around here. I mean, I have a I have a few herbs immediately around the house, but that's about it because that's the only place where there's sunlight. So I I wildcraft most of the things that I gather, and that means I go out into a field or I go go out into the forest. And um, I mean, I've written a, a, a few books about trees. One is called Tree Medicine, Tree Magic. One is called A Druid's Herbal of Sacred Tree Medicine. And those books teach you how to use trees uh, for food and medicine. And um, when I moved to New England, because the growing season is so short here, uh, initially I couldn't figure out how people survived up here. It, mm-hmm. just, it just, you know, I couldn't... <laughs> It made no sense to me because as a modern person, I'm so used to in the middle of January, I can go down to the stop and shop and pick up, a, you know, milk or cheese or whatever I want uh, or strawberries yeah, <laughs> in yeah. the middle of winter. And I just I just couldn't figure it out because when I first moved here and the climate has already shifted. Yes. I, I've been here 30 years. But when I first moved here, you couldn't grow anything from mid-September um, until after Memorial Day. Yeah, that's and, and, yeah. yeah, the growing season is longer now than it used to be, but but um, I just couldn't, it made no sense. I couldn't figure it out. How did people live? How did they get vitamin C? How did they get any fresh food? You know, and then I looked at the trees and I said, oh, they must have been using the trees somehow. And so I immediately started looking for a book that would show me how to do that, and I couldn't find one. And I looked and looked, and then I finally said, okay, I guess I have to write this book, even though I'd never written a book before. So my first book was Tree Medicine, Tree Magic, which is now out in a revised and expanded edition. It just came out a couple years ago. And that um, I have a lot more recipes in there, but you can go out in the middle of January in a snowstorm, Mm -hmm. in a blizzard, it doesn't matter, and you can get medicine. You know, you've got white pine needles, you've got oak bark. I mean, there's just things that you can get. So you're never, you'll never be without medicine and you don't have to go to the drugstore and you don't have to go to the CVS or Walmart or 
wherever it is that people go. Um, so long if as you, if you know what you're doing. So you know? long as you have trees too. I mean, <laughs> I not not to be not right. to be flip or sarcastic, but the no, way- no, no, no. We're in a huge struggle right now where I live. I, mean, I live in a rural area. I'm in Massachusetts. And the state of Massachusetts has made a decision, which sounds good at first. They said, oh, we want to have um, solar energy, solar and wind, and we want to get off fossil fuels, you know, and they have this massive program. The only problem is they didn't make any laws about where things can be cited. They have little vague suggestions, you know, they say, oh, well, we recommend that cutting down forests is not the best solution. No, know, it's for, not. For citing solar panels and... Um, you should find old uh, landfills and, and cleared areas and deserted areas. You know, that's where they should go. Um, but l- what's happening now is we, we're a heavily forested area, and the forest um, owners, the logging companies, have decided that they can make more profit putting up solar arrays than they can with logging. So the the two choices that they're making, and they're both terrible, one is they're clear-cutting forests to put in massive, and I'm talking about 100-acre solar farms, Mm -hmm. um, which is tragic enough. But the other choice that they're making is they're massively cutting trees to make pellets, wood pellets, which are being exported to Europe and to Canada so that people can use them for heat. But uh, that's a double whammy because you lose the the Mm. trees, which are holding carbon, and then you're burning the pellets which sends, you know, carbon into the atmosphere. So, I mean, it all comes down to the lack of laws. Right. People just haven't, you know, people are doing whatever they want right now, It's it's and it's tragic. It's, I mean, people think about the rainforest, you know, they think about the Amazon or Brazil, but it's actually happening right here, right in my backyard, right here in New England, and um, I hope people are paying attention to that. I always found it fascinating that nobody thought about putting um, solar arrays above parking lots you have these vast fields that's where, yeah that's where they should be every shopping mall every supermarket every school every college uh, every university um, should have them and then people could plug their electric cars mm-hmm. into them you know um, and then a, a very simple law to pass you could say two things one every municipal building must have solar panels yeah. as well as a backup system you know uh, in case the sun isn't shining you got to have some kind of backup and uh, what's the other thing um, uh, I can't remember right now it'll come to me <laughs> but there I, I boiled it down after thinking about it uh, to just two things um, but anyway if, if we had oh every new building built yes. after a certain date and you can pick a date 2020 2024 whatever every new building built after a certain date must have solar panels i think okay, that's a wonderful idea that's a that's a brilliant idea yeah so those if you had those two things um that could you could blanket the state you know yeah, with sure with solar, but in, instead they're clear-cutting the forests to put in solar panels which is it, it just makes no sense you know it's a it, it, that's one of the things i love about doing the show is that i'll be talking to somebody and we'll go off on a tangent on that and you'll learn something new um, I, I I totally agree. I think I think that um, renewable energy could produce so many jobs here in the United States. It's not even funny. I and I think that we're missing oh, yeah. out on a huge opportunity. Um, so I, one of the questions that I had is that um, trying to nail down the definition of what a herbalist is and what does it mean to be an herbalist. And maybe this is an opportunity for you for some other um, um, promotion as well. How does somebody become an herbalist? 
wow, <laughs> everybody's different. I mean, one of the things about herbalists is that we tend to be renegades. You know, we don't like to follow orders. That's why I become herbalists. Uh, you know, otherwise we would become doctors. You know, if we wanted to, to toe the line and, you know, herbalists uh, tend to be iconoclasts, uh, kind of, you know, wild creatures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we do things differently. Um, for one thing, you're learning your whole life. You never stop learning. So there's no one way to do it. You're always learning, whether you're learning directly from nature or whether you're taking workshops or reading books or studying with other herbalists. It just never stops. You know, it's it's a lifelong commitment. Um but yeah, everybody does it differently. Some people, there are herb schools now that you can go to. Uh, you can also study naturopathic medicine. So you can become a licensed naturopath and an herbalist. Um, you can be largely self-taught through books. Uh, I mean, everybody's different, you know, and, and some people specialize in uh, plants. Some people work more with flower essences. Uh, everybody, everybody does it differently. Some people work more with foods, foods as medicine. You know, we're all different. I also read on your website that you, do you teach herbology? Yes, I do. There you um, go. I have a school and I have a six month training program that I run every year. Um, near Amherst, Massachusetts. If anyone's interested, my website is ellenevertthopman.com. And uh, I think you kind of have to live near here because in the winter it gets a little tricky. But, you know, I have had people commute from Connecticut, Vermont, places like that. Um, but, I, yeah, I teach. And, I, and then I get invited to teach. I was just in Ireland uh, this summer, and I've taught in Scotland, and uh, I go to California sometimes. You know, wherever I get invited, I go. Yeah, and that's... So, and that's how you wound up here. We invited you, and here you are. Yeah. Yep. So you're you are you are a bit of a, a, a free spirit, a free traveling spirit. Um, now you, um, we opened up the show talking about how you noticed that there was a vacuum of books. There were no books on on the topic of um, herbology, and you decided. Oh well, no, to- not herbology. There were a few herb books. Okay. But I couldn't find a book on how to use trees. Aha. Um, okay. And that's that's what I was looking for specifically, and because it didn't exist. And I was actually in graduate school at the time. I just said, gee, I guess I have to write it. And I wrote the first book while I was in graduate school. That's how crazy I am. Because I am looking at your uh, your Amazon page, and you have a Druid's uh, herbal, uh, herbal of Secret Tree Medicine. And right. you, you have a, you, you have, I think that your, your page goes on. Um, how many books have you written? I think I've written 15 at this point, but that includes one that's coming out, uh, next August and one that I, maybe one that I'm working on now. I lose count. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's about 15. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll have to look at your Wikipedia page again and, and count them. Um, so yeah. how now? How, how do you come up with an idea to write uh, write these books? How do the other than the fact that there are no other books out there on this topic? How do the ideas come to you? Um, well, usually I'll be lying in bed at five o'clock in the morning trying to decide if I'm going to get up or not, mm-hmm. and then <laughs> then I get an idea for a book, and that's how I know I have to go write the book because that's typically what happens. I get this idea, and and then I I see the whole book. 
I see the beginning, I see the middle, I see the end, and then I go, oh my God, I have to write another one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so kind of like, you know, but 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 now it's it's what I do. It's my work, you know. So now I just realize it's my assignment. Wherever it's coming from, I don't know. Um, apparently, this is what I'm born to do because obviously it's what I do. So. And you've written, you know, and you've mm-hmm. written um, uh, fiction and nonfiction. Um, can you tell right. us a little bit about your nonfiction for a moment? Well, um, it seems like somebody said I was the studs turkle of paganism. I've never even read a book by studs turkle. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, studs turkle was somebody who, and I guess it was a brand new idea when he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, he interviewed uh, workers. Yeah. Have you read his book? As a matter of fact, it was required reading when I was growing up in Vermont. Um, his wow. his uh, his book yeah. Working was one of those books that sort of followed me. Um, in and out through through junior high and high school. Go you know go get a copy of Workers or Working, okay. and and read up on a job that you think might be interesting. And I, I and I, I I one of the chapters that I thought was captivating was broadcasting of all things. I thought that was fascinating. So I do think that it, it is is I it's I think it's like an underrated classic. So and and I think that that's a high compliment for somebody telling to, you know to tell you that you are the stud historical of, of druidism well of, of paganism paganism because i i wrote um the first book is called being a pagan mm-hmm. druids wiccans and witches today and in that one um and again i i hadn't read studs turkle i wasn't aware that there was a genre even i just uh because i wanted to know what the different kinds of pagans were i started going to various festivals and interviewing pagan leaders um, people who were the movers and shakers in the pagan world and asking them, you know, what they believed and what they were trying to do and their thoughts for the future and all these kinds of things. And that was the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did A Legacy of Druids, which is a book strictly about druids. And to do that one, I went to Britain and I again, I went to festivals and um, dragged a tape recorder around and interviewed arch druids in Britain and in Canada and in the U.S. And and then the, um, the third one is the new one that just came out. It's called The Real Witches of New England. And in that one, I interview the descendants of the Salem witches, or I should say accused witches, mm-hmm. because none of them were witches. Uh, but they have descendants, you know, in the beginning, I, I couldn't imagine how I would find them, but now I find them everywhere. I just met another one yesterday, I and mean, oh, everywhere wow. I go, I meet them now, um, because uh, there are over 300 accused witches in New England, and they all had big families, and they all had descendants, you know. But um, I also interview modern witches, practicing witches, mm-hmm. in that book. And so, apparently, I mean, you know, what I'm doing is I'm, documenting the different paths uh, that exist out there of, of pagans, whether it's a druid or a witch uh, or a Wiccan, you know, they're all different, mm-hmm. and and what they believe and how they practice and what they think and how they grew up. And so what, what did part it, of a historical record. What did it mean to be a witch for the, those who don't know back in the era of the Salem tr- witch trial, and why was it such a crime? Well, to be a witch meant that you were consorting with the devil back in those days, which was about the worst thing anybody could do. Um, but this is, I mean, Salem was just the end of something that had been going on for 2,000 years. And, you know, everybody thinks about Salem because of the crucible and, you know, all the TV and media depictions of Salem. 
but Salem was just a drop in the bucket, you know. Um, in the book, The Real Witches of New England, I start out with a timeline of the witch persecutions, uh, starting with the Bronze Age. And that's, you know, if you look at the, the Bible, um, there are passages in the Bible. I'm, I'm looking it up here because I don't, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I can read it for you. Uh, in the Old Testament, so, well, in Exodus, and we're talking about, that's 5,000 years ago, practically. Uh, it was actually written, well, 1400 B.C., so 4,000 years ago. Um, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, although some people say that that's a bad translation, that it the word became witch um, around the time of King James because he was terrified of witches. Mm -hmm. But before that, it was probably poisoner. Thou shalt not suffer a poisoner to live. And then Leviticus, a man also or woman that hath a familiar spirit or that is a wizard shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Uh, that's Leviticus. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting. If you read the Old Testament, you should look up something called uh, Google K for the Queen of Heaven. Mm -hmm. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, the women knead the dough to make cakes to the Queen of Heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods that they may provoke me to anger. That's in Jeremiah. And that's Yahweh complaining, getting angry, um, because uh, women are going out and baking cakes for the Queen of Heaven and offering them to the fire. You know, the, the Queen of Heaven was the goddess Asherah, who's a Canaanite goddess, and apparently Yahweh didn't like that because it was competition. Hmm. Um, then also Jeremiah and said the women... When we were burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and were pouring out libations to her, was it without our husbands that we made for her sacrificial cakes in her image and poured out libations to her? So, I mean, one of the things I did when I was doing the research in order to understand what witches actually did that everybody was so upset about um, I started looking at the writings of the church fathers, uh, you know, a thousand years ago, what they were saying, and you can figure out what the practices were by, by passages like this, you know, that tell you that they were making little images and cakes in the form of the goddess and burning them so the smoke would send them up to heaven, you know. That was one of the terrible things that people were doing. Uh, <laughs> but anyway... Um, that, so when Christianity came in, and we know this because St. Augustine wrote about it, for about a thousand years, nobody cared about witches. And that was because St. Augustine said that to believe in witchcraft was heresy because only God has power. Therefore, uh, to believe that a person would have power, that a person could do magic or manifest things or whatever, that that was heresy and nonsense, and nobody could have that kind of power. So for a thousand years, everything was okay. And then, if you remember Y2K, we had the Y2K hysteria, because in our culture, we're totally dependent on computers, exactly, and yeah. everybody thought the world was going to end. Right. Do you remember that? I, I, I do right. remember. As I was working in telecom at the time, and I actually had to work at a central command center and um, during New Year's of 2000, and we just oh watched, nothing happened, <laughs> except right. I got... <laughs> well, the same thing happened in the year 999, when the calendar was about to flip over to the year 1000. Everybody went nuts. They thought the world was going to end, 
and they didn't have computers, but the the scariest thing that they could imagine was the devil showing up. So they, they were convinced that at the stroke of midnight in the year 1000, the devil was going to show himself, and everybody was going to be doomed, and the world was going to end. So... That's, so th- that's one hell of a New Year's party. Well, I mean, it looks probably the same thing's going to happen again, you know, when we go to the year 3000, whatever. It seems to be something. Yeah. I don't know what it is about calendars. But anyway, so then people started being scared of the devil. Before that, you know, it, it wasn't that big a deal. But after that, it became a big deal. But um, then people started becoming afraid of people that worked with the devil. and they. But in the popular imagination, they thought, well, if you're working with the devil, uh Satan's not going to be interested in you unless you're very smart, you know, you're going to have all these powers, and therefore you must be male, you must be a man. So when they pictured a witch or they or a wizard, they thought they must be men, because they have to be smart people with lots of talent. They must be men, right? That, that, that is so sexist. So that went on, huh? That is sexist, but, you know. Well, just a little. <laughs> yep. But women were off the hook at that point, and until a book was written... I mean, this is because we, when we think of witches, I think in our culture, most people think of witches as old women, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's because in 1475, Johannes Nieder publishes a book called Formicarius, and he says witches must be um, women because women are inferior, both physically, mentally, and morally. They are uneducated, not that bright. Therefore, women are more susceptible to the devil. Therefore, witches must be women. And that was um, right after the Gutenberg, around the time the Gutenberg uh, press was invented. And that word got out like wildfire. And after that, witches were thought of as women. And then, you know, the Holocaust of witches was also a Holocaust of women and a lot of other groups, you know, Jews and heretics and Protestants in Catholic areas and Catholics in Protestant areas and Cathars and, you know, anybody they didn't like, gays, you know, yeah. whoever they didn't like. Anybody who's yeah. labeled as, quote, different, unquote, is, seems to mm-hmm. always be some kind of a target of one way, shape, yep. or form. So, I mean, do you think that there was a misunderstanding of, of what these women were, were doing at the time to be branded as as evil? Or? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Because this is, I mean, this is actually a very complicated subject. There's a lot to it. But there were things going on. I mean, as time went on, well, the church was trying to keep everybody scared, first of all. So if you were in a predominantly Catholic country and they had a minority of Protestants, then they would persecute Protestants. If you were in a primarily Protestant country and with a minority of Catholics, they would go after the Catholics. If you were in a country that was homogenous, for example, in Italy, and I was fascinated to find this out because I always assumed that the Inquisition was very much a church thing, but I found out that um, the church actually tried to get them to stop, although they didn't they didn't uh, try very hard. <laughs> but no. the Pope, um, because Italy was 100% Catholic, so they weren't worried about Protestants, you know. So the Pope uh, issues out a papal bull saying, um, you know, evidence that you get by torture is not reliable. That's what the Pope said. <laughs> and how long ago did the Pope um, say this? Uh, I can, Let me see. I'm looking at my notes here. Um, I can probably tell you the year. It, it did surprise me um, when I saw that, because the, the Spanish Inquisition was terrible. It um, was, yeah. Minute. It's in the book. I'll okay. Say, I'll just tell you that. But... Um, Let's see, I'm looking through my notes. Ask me something else while I'm looking here. <laughs> oh, oh, here we go. It was um, 
the year 1635, the Roman Inquisition admitted that it had found, quote, scarcely one trial conducted legally. That was in 1635, and that was when the the Pope said that evidence that you get by torture is not reliable. Which, you know, which brings me to another topic. As I was researching all this, I just kept seeing reflections of our own modern society in the book, you know, and I do make comments throughout, but... I don't think people have changed that much. No. You know, we, we still we still like to get evidence using torture and you know, they knew back then that torture didn't work. So it's funny how or sad, tragic that history just keeps repeating itself. Yeah, and it could it could get really bad again. I mean this is this is something I hope people are aware of. You know, people are people, humans are humans and we have leaders who try to convince us that we're supposed to be terrified of some group or we're supposed to hate some group. You know, when you hear that kind Coming from you know a, a president or a demagogue or whoever it mm-hmm. is, um, just keep in mind that throughout human history, that kind of talk has gotten us into a lot of trouble. Exactly. Yeah. It, yes. Yeah. And it's all fun and games until you are the one who is labeled as the other. Exactly. So, um, well, let's let's switch gears and and dive deep into your book, The Real Witches of New England: uh, mm-hmm. History, Lore, and Modern Practice. Uh, now, this book in particular, did, did it? Have have a moment like a, a a genesis moment or an epiphany where you said I have to write this book and what what was that moment yeah, like? Yeah, it did actually. Um, I went to a poetry reading in Wendell, Massachusetts, which is a little rural town, and there was poet Mike Mowry, and he read this long poem about half hanged Mary, the witch of Hadley. Mm-hmm. And um, ha- I was working in Hadley at the time; I had a job and. I had no idea that there was a witch of Hadley, and then I found out there was a witch of Northampton. Northampton is about 45 minutes from me. Then I found out that the first accused witch was in New England was actually in Springfield, and uh, which is also 45 minutes from me. And you know, and I, I was just shocked that I had lived here for 30 years and nobody had mentioned any of this. Um, you know, I'd never heard about it. So Half-Hanged Mary, she's in the book I have. There's a whole chapter I talk with one of her descendants. But the reason she's called that is because uh, they hung her by the neck and they took her down for dead and they threw her in a snowbank and they left her there um, thinking she was dead, but she wasn't. And she got up, walked home, (laughs) and and she lived for another 11 years. Well, that's so quite a gal. Um, Yeah, that's fortitude uh, right there. That is fortitude. Yeah, and she's buried in Old Hadley Cemetery. So Old Hadley Cemetery was three minutes from where I was working, and I walked over there and I tried to find her grave and I couldn't find it. Um, But I did find one defaced headstone, which Mm -hmm. I bet was hers. Um, But I brought a rose. For her, I couldn't find her grave, so I, there was this big oak tree there, and I went to the tree, and I, I said to the tree spirit, you know, please tell Mary this is for her, <laughs> you mm. know, and I left the rose at the base of the tree, um, but yes, uh, and then, you know, this is just the way books happen for me. If I have a question, and this became a question, what else don't I know, you know, so I started looking into it. What is, it, you look at the topic, it says the real witches of New England, so there must be real witches. What does it mean to be a real witch, especially in New England? Well, there are witches everywhere. Okay. And you're probably working with a witch. You probably have friends who are witches. Um, I mean, witches are hiding in plain sight. They're everywhere. But uh, witches, um, what they have in common after interviewing so many witches, 
They all see the divine in nature. They see the divine in plants, in trees, in animals, in people, in water, in air, in fire, in the soil. You know, they just see the divine everywhere. Um, and they have the same holidays. So there's there's different kinds of witches. They follow different traditions. But everybody has the same holidays. And that's the solstices and the equinoxes and then the points in between. And one of those points, of course, is Halloween, which is an old Celtic mm-hmm. pagan festival, and that's coming up. Um, in bulk, which happens in February, Beltane or May Day, and then Lunasa, uh, which is the beginning of the harvest in the beginning of August. So everybody honors those. Some witches um, have gods and goddesses, some witches don't. Uh, some witches just worship nature directly. Some pe- some witches work with fairies. They work with different spirits. Um, I have not interviewed anybody who is into Satan or the devil or black witchcraft or anything like that. Um, and that's that's a misconception that people have. The devil is actually a Christian, or I should say, Judeo-Christian. I guess I don't know. Do Jews believe in the devil? Is I think the they, I the think they do. I think they believe not to the same. I, I don't think. The, the Jew, uh, the the devil, as depicted by the Jews, is the same as depicted by the Christians. Even though there is mention of uh, Lucifer in the Old Testament, I believe. Right. Well, you know, when oh, the, like in when, the Book in of Job, Scotland, yeah. um, when they heard about, well, when they tried to define what the fairies were, um, the origin of the fairies, because. They recognize the fairies as a race uh, of beings who live on the earth with us, you know. And they said, oh yeah, those are those are angels that fell out of heaven. And that happened when Lucifer had his rebellion and all the fallen angels came to, the, came to earth and fell into the ground and became the fairies. So that's the Scottish explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the whole idea of working with the devil, that's some, the devil is primarily a Judeo-Christian and Islamic deity, from, from everything I can tell. And that's not what witches are into at all. And if they are, it's just, be, you know, they're, it's, it's usually a younger person who's trying to be rebellious, and you know, it's it, it's not that's not what real witches do, from what I can tell. And so, and what does a real witch actually do um, besides what we've already covered? Um, do they do they? Because pro- I'm trying to break through the stereotype of of, mm-hmm. of witches. So it's like it's it, they're not like as they were depicted in Macbeth with with the cauldron, or, or are they? Or and they're just misunderstood. Well, they could be. <laughs> okay. Everybody's different, you know. Um, it, and it also depends on what period of history you're, you're talking about, because in the Middle Ages, the witches were the wise ones, and they were called cunning men or cunning women. Um, they were the village veterinarian, therapist, counselor, herbalist, midwife, uh, all rolled into one, working with the common people. Um, but the reason people were, were a little scared of witches, and people are always scared of witches, it's because the witch was a law unto herself. The witch was an independent agent. Um, you didn't know where his or her loyalties lay at any given time because they made their own rules, they made their own decisions, and that was really scary, especially in a time when you're taught that only the church knows the right way to do things, and you can't talk to God, only the priest can talk to God, so you have to go to the priest and then probably give them some money, you know, so they'll pray for you or whatever. And the witch said, no, 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 um, I do this myself, you know, and the witch would talk to nature or talk to God directly, um, which was considered taboo and heresy and arrogant and... Um, 
you know, it was that was a scary thing. Um, and the witch could could um, do a spell against you, I suppose. Uh, they could also do a spell for you, and you just didn't know. But, you know, when the medical profession got going, they didn't like witches because the witches were the midwives. And the midwives were trusted people who knew a lot about contraception, abortion, giving birth. Um, and if women had someone like that they could go to, then women could control their own lives. They could control their destinies, plan their families, you know, all that. Um, and that was direct competition to the medical profession. So that got you in a lot of trouble. Um, plus, after the Black Death, after the plague happened in, in Europe, the population dropped. And now labor was very scarce. It was hard to find workers. And the workers wanted more pay and they wanted better benefits. And they had land because a lot of people had died. Um, so how are you going to control people? Well, uh, how are you going to... Hmm? Well, to control people, you, 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 you control them through religion. You can And you control how they eat or what they eat and you also control them through their you scare them. yeah you scare you frighten them and you try and control them through their right. their uh, reproduction um, uh, practices or however you want to call it well they didn't want women controlling birth they didn't want women having contraception or limiting the number of babies because they wanted the landowners needed workers and they wanted to repopulate Europe as quickly as possible so the midwives became suspect you know for that but but if you you know there are, the estimates are between maybe forty thousand and the highest number I've seen is three hundred thousand, but it's probably more like sixty thousand witches quote unquote were burned or killed altogether. But if you if you just killed one person, accused one person of witchcraft and killed them, that would terrify people for mm -hmm. fifty or a hundred mile radius. You know that would scare everybody, and that was a way to keep everybody cowed. You know. I see that you spoke to. A lot of descendants of of witches. Um, how, how did did they come to you? How, how did you find them? And what did they have to say to you when when you finally interviewed them? Well, in the beginning, I you know I couldn't imagine how I was going to find them. I thought I thought you know there must be just a few and they're all hidden or whatever. And I it, I literally went online and started googling, and then I found groups of people, um, associations of descendants. Mm -hmm. And I just started randomly writing to them saying, could you please ask your members uh, if there's anybody who'd be willing to talk to me? And then slowly people started coming out of the woodwork and um, it kind of snowballed from there. And literally, I seem to be meeting one every week now. I mean, like I said, yesterday I was at a, a gathering of the Irish, the Amherst Irish Association in Amherst, Massachusetts. And there was a woman there who was a descendant of Mary Bliss Parsons, who's the, the witch of Northampton. And so I started talking to her. I told her about the book. She didn't know about the book. Um, but I meet them everywhere now. You know, I think I went on various uh, lists that I'm on, Yahoo groups, and I just asked people, do you know any descendants? You know, or I went on Facebook, and they're everywhere. I mean, there must be thousands and thousands of them, uh, you know, because, like I said before, um, there were over 300 accused witches. Most of them um, came from very large families here in the colony, and they, they had many, many descendants. <laughs> That's what I found. So if you just do a little digging, um, in fact, one of the witches that I interviewed for the modern witches section of the book did not know that she was a descendant, and she didn't find out until after I interviewed her. Um, some cousin or somebody wrote to her and said, by the way, did you know we're descended from... <laughs> 
I mean, they're That's amazing. Now, now, did she find out about this because of the work that you did with her and then it got back to her family member that, that you were doing well, the interview? She, she's been a witch for many years. It's uh, Laura Wildman Hanlon. She's in the book. And she's been a witch probably for 30 years. Um, but it just happened. She said, oh, I wish I had known this when you interviewed me. She didn't know until after our, the book came out, actually. She, she only found out, you know, a few months ago. But I'm just saying it's it's common. I mean, in New England, this is where it happened, you know, so I imagine mm-hmm. most of the descendants are still in this area. And now, what is it about New England that seems to be the epicenter of witch culture? Or is it because of the Salem witch trials that we have such a, a, a reputation for being the epicenter of, of witch culture? Well, I think that's a popular misconception. I think witches are everywhere. Okay. Uh, there are there are many, many witches in California. I know this for a fact. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, witches are everywhere, uh, even in the Bible Belt. You know, there. Um, I just focused on New England because you know that's why I wrote the book was because I didn't know that half hanged Mary, the witch of Hadley. I, I had no clue that she was here, and so I just decided to focus on New England. Um, but you know what happened was. Uh, New England, we had a very small colony of people here, uh, the first settlers when they came, and um, they came from Europe, and, uh, you know, every everything that had been going on for the last thousand years in Europe, you know, for centuries, this terrible witch persecution that had been going on was in their mind when they came here. So they brought all that with them. They brought the fear, they brought the the accusations, you know, the misconceptions, the, they brought all of that with them. And it was not a very nice place to be mm-hmm. uh, in the colonies here because um, they, they lived in the forest. They didn't know how to grow food. They were dependent on food coming in um, on ships from England. Uh, they were terrified of the Indians. They thought they were going to be killed at any moment. Their children were dying. They were starving half the time. And, um, you know, it was very, they were sick and they they tried to blame people because I guess that's human nature. They just look for somebody to blame. Let's look for a scapegoat because we can't take personal responsibility for our inadequacies and our mistakes. That seems to be exactly. That's yeah, a, exactly. That's a trend that we see time and time again um, throughout human history. So now, would you say that the witches in the region who were able to help their colonies survive, um, w- w- was that the case? Did Were there witches that actually helped their colonies or their neighborhoods survive? Or were they... I'm sure. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Because anybody who knew herbs, or being an herbalist, by the way, made you a witch that that could make you a target but it it would have been the herbalists people who knew herbs would have been the ones that would be doctoring people Mm -hmm. so i mean in in europe it was certainly the witches that helped people survive because they were the healers um you know uh and i'm sure in the colonies as well um was no go ahead I was just going to say that uh, it was like any bad neighborhood where the neighbors are fighting with each other. (laughs) Basically, (laughs) that's what it was like. Yeah, yeah. And to this day, we still see that. Um, what what was what was the one event that triggered the, the persecution of the witches? What's what was the one sort of put things over the top that turned um, non non witches against the, the witches? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Um, well, you had that Y one K thing. Mm-hmm. You know, at the turn of the millennium, people got scared, and then they started thinking about the devil. 
And it didn't happen all at once. I mean, it, it took it took a few centuries to get really bad. Mm-hmm. It just snowballed. You know, it, it happened very gradually um, as people got the idea that you could accuse people and you could kill people and you could take their land. I mean, it, it, there are a lot of different reasons, but, you know, if you had a widow, uh, her her nieces and nephews might want her farm, so a good way to get the land would be to get rid of her, and then they would inherit the farm, you know, that kind of thing. Um, or again, if you wanted to terrify the population, you know, to start burning a few witches, and that would keep everybody under control. Um, or, you know, if, if, you, if you were, like I said, in a Catholic country, and you wanted to get rid of the Protestants, or if you were in a Protestant country and you want to get rid of the Catholics. Um, the stereotype of the old woman, mm-hmm. which, you know, with the wart on the nose and old women, old women who had cats, mm-hmm. old women who were deaf. That was a wonderful target. If you were deaf, they didn't have hearing aids, right? Right. So a woman would, would be muttering to herself because uh, she couldn't hear what was going on. And people who tried to talk to her would have to yell and then they would get really impatient and, well, let's get rid of her. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was bad. So it was just misfortunate scapegoating and opportunism. Yeah. Um, yep. So now, looking at how things have changed over the past couple of decades, I guess we could say that sort of like the tide has turned, whereas you have like the the writings of, I cannot remember the name of the author who wrote The Wizard of Oz. I'm sure it'll come to me, but there was the notion of... Baum? Yes. Baum, yeah. There, there was the notion of there are good witches and there are bad witches. And, and there's sort of like the, sort of like the, um, the paradigm shift has sort of like swung in, in, in another direction or the opposite direction where you see good witches in pop culture. Um, mm-hmm. And there is, uh, witches have sort of like, they've come into their own, as it were. Could you look at a specific time in, in our culture and say this is when the paradigm shift occurred for witches in, in a good way? Well, I remember in the 1990s, there was a big satanic panic, witch hysteria, mm-hmm. and people, especially in the Bible Belt, were accusing covens of witches of murdering children. It was all fake, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then along came, you know, Harry Potter, mm-hmm. and... Uh, Charmed, the TV series, which is back again, and Bewitched in the 1960s, I guess, happened. But um, slowly, uh, witches became cute, um, in Harry Potter's case, heroic, you know. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of in a golden age right now where people are not afraid of witches. Right now, you're supposed to be afraid of immigrants. That's the the scapegoat Mm -hmm. du jour. Um, But that that could change, you know. I mean, and and I really believe that. I believe that somebody, I've heard Trump use the word witch hunt. He likes to use that word. Yes, he does. It really scares me when he does that. And then um, poor Pope Francis. I like Pope Francis, but he said something a couple of weeks ago that makes me very nervous. Um, He was talking about the pedophile scandal in the Catholic Church. And instead of blaming the men who were doing the assaulting of children, he said it was the devil. Yes. And then he said it was uh, Satan who was trying to divide the Catholic Church. And when I hear those words, you know, the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I go, uh-oh, you know, because that's really all it takes. It takes somebody to start talking about Satan and witches and witch hunts and, 
It could it could all go south again very quickly, I think. There there was also a trend within churches here, at least in, in my region, blaming everything on people being indwelt with the spirit of Jezebel. I thought that was Jezebel. That I thought that really? was a cl- I thought that was a clever one. I'm not and I'm trying I to f- haven't heard that one. Oh, okay. So <laughs> the, it's a it's a regional phenomenal phenomenon then, or it was within certain um, neo-Christian uh, sects blaming uh, people who were becoming... Um, um, oh, feminists? Not, yeah, not, not, not just feminists, but people who were sort of starting to question some of the, the doctrines of the church, questioning the, the <laughs> prosper doctrine of the church, whereas if you, if you pray hard enough and you tithe enough to the church, God will bless you tenfold if you give away all your money to the church. Um, there were, like, with the Prosperities Doctrine, there's a lot of strings attached to it. Um, if you question the Prosperity Doctrine within the church and you said, I don't think that this is a good thing, I don't think this is something that we should be proponent, you are indwelt with the spirit of Jezebel. I, re- I remember hearing right, that a Jezebel lot. Jezebel is a female figure. Uh-huh. Why? <laughs> yep. Why would they be attacking a female figure um, unless it was in reaction to the Me Too movement or, you know, uppity women trying to gain, gain their voice or something? I don't know. that. I mean, I know that down south uh, they've had book burnings. Yeah. When the Harry, Harry Potter books came out, the church was organizing book burnings. <laughs> But I, the Jezebel thing is new to me. <laughs> but, yeah, it ju- but it just it just seems to me to be more scapegoating than anything else. I'm right, not- but they're picking a female figure. That's interesting because what you know, women don't have power in this culture, and yet certain men, especially, are terrified of women, which I just don't get. I mean, we have no power. Twenty uh, percent of the Congress is female. We, we don't have female CEOs. There's very few. Uh, we've never had a female president. I mean, and yet men are just absolutely terrified. Women don't get paid as much as um, women are usually the victims of uh, domestic assault, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and yet to blame all this stuff on, on a female figure on Jezebel, that's curious. I, I just did a quick search here yeah. talking about what is the spirit of Jezebel and okay. it, and it and it talks about Jezebel's story can be found in first and second kings she was the daughter of I'm not even going to pronounce this guy's name a priest of the cult of Baal a cruel sensuous and revolting false god whose worship involves sexual degradation lewdness Arab, the king of the Israels, married Jezebel and led the nation into Baal worship and then things got crazy from there um, and I thought that, I, and I think that it's funny how it was so often um, people look for female villains in many aspects of our culture. Like somehow it's it's the homewrecker or it's it's the Jezebel or there are all of these other, um, like Delilah. I remember bl- like, for, you know, blaming Delilah, the spirit of Delilah who um, weakened Samson, this whole story of Samson and Goliath. Um, um, Sam, um, oh, yes, and then Delilah. Yeah, that that whole Delilah was for a while. She was 
And it well, was, look at Adam and Eve. They blame uh, Eve you, you, for I, you, the downfall you, of humanity. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was I was slowly getting to Eve. So there is something about um, uh, cultures that vilify strong women. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think that that is? Do you think that that is turning around slowly? Do you think that there is an uprising? No, I don't. Because okay. you just saw what happened with the Supreme Court. We're exactly where we were thirty years ago. Nothing has changed nothing has changed it's all been an illusion <laughs> really or do i mean you... i can i can tell you the origins of this from what i've put together well, if you want to hear yeah it. tell I me mean, your perspective okay but... so five thousand years ago um you had this tiny little group of hebrew priests it was a male dominated patriarchal hebrew high temple religion and at the same time you had the religion that everybody else was practicing, the common people, the Canaanites, um, they had gods and goddesses, they were nature worshippers, they had nature festivals, they you know, festivals of planting mm-hmm. trees and festivals of in the spring, you know. I mean, it was it was a nature religion with, with a very powerful goddess Asherah, and along comes this group of of Hebrew male high temple priests. Um, who were trying to get their sect organized, their group, and they're the ones that wrote the Old Testament, and that's why you have Yahweh complaining about cakes for the Queen mm-hmm. of Heaven, because, you know, um, Asherah was probably more popular than Yahweh at that point, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And um, so they're trying to consolidate their power, so um, these high temple priests do everything they can to put down goddess worship to put down women. I mean, the Old Testament has horrible, if you look at Proverbs, and really awful things to say about women, like the greatest misfortune that can happen to a man is to give birth to a daughter, you know, things like that. Mm. Um, so they were they were trying to undo, and this is what new religions always do, they demonize the religion that came before. Mm-hmm. And that's what they were doing. They were trying to make the goddess-worshipping nature religion look as awful as they could um, as they consolidated power. And every, you know, what we have now What's, what Christianity that we have now actually bears very little resemblance, I think, to what Jesus was about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, know? you and I agree on that. <laughs> yeah, we do. Agree. Uh, you and I are are on the same page. Is that? Yeah, um, but that's that was the start of it. They wanted they wanted to suppress the feminine divine. You know, even though in Judaism there is a female aspect of God, the Shekinah is the female Godhead. Mm-hmm. You know, that been kind of wiped out. It's been wiped out. Of, you have to study Kabbalah to get that yeah um not in the bible you know it's they did a pretty good job of wiping all that out and that that's as far as i can tell with our culture that's where it began what else can we say about your book what i mean besides the fact that it might be the perfect reading for this time of year what what are some things that you'd like people to know about your book that we haven't covered already well really i just want them as they're reading it to just constantly think back to what's happening in our society today and just look at the parallels you know you'll see parallels all through the book and i and i do mention it you know as, as i'm going along i'll say and that's not unlike what's happening today mm-hmm. you know or something but but just look at the parallels and know that this is human history this is our history this is european history this is what we brought here when the european boat people came to america this is what they brought and 
um, what happened in New England, anyway, uh, one of the reasons I believe that Massachusetts tries so hard to be tolerant and liberal, you know, we're the bluest of the blue states, Mm -hmm. um, I think that what happened in Salem has something to do with that, because right after they killed all these people, and they, as soon as they hung everybody, they almost immediately realized that none of them were witches. Yeah. They were all Christians, you know, Um, and everybody felt so bad, and they were ashamed, and they immediately started paying restitution to the families, and I mean, can you just imagine how people felt the guilt that they must have felt? And and I feel like in Massachusetts, especially, um, we're still dealing with the reverberations of that, and we're trying very hard to be tolerant and hospitable and shelter immigrants. Um, you know, we have churches just down the road that are that have uh, South Americans uh, with, who are getting sanctuary in the church mm-hmm. um, so that they don't get deported. We have a man in, who um, all his children were born in America. He's been living here for 20 or 30 years, and he's married, and, um, and yet they want to deport him, you know, because he's undocumented. So he's He's, we're, we're trying really hard <laughs> you yeah. know, to, to protect people. And it's kind of like when the Jews were being protected in Denmark and Holland and during World War II. That's exactly where we're at now. You know, Concentration camps are being built at the border. Um, we, we're locking up refugees and asylum seekers. Um, the rest of the world looks at this with absolute horror because it's not illegal to be a refugee. It's not illegal to seek asylum uh, anywhere in the world except here. <laughs> yeah. um, separating kids from their families. You know, I mean, I just hope people, you know, have their wits about them and, and can observe what is happening now and as they read the book, you know, just see what, what we're capable of. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, e- even in World War II, if you look at the people that Hitler was targeting, Hitler was, you know, Hitler himself was, was raised Catholic, although there's some rumor, I think, that he was actually Jewish. But on his or, mother's or side, he, I think. He but, had a Jewish um, grandmother, a I believe. predominantly uh, Protestant Lutheran country, which is Germany. So the normal European way to deal with that would be to attack Catholics, which is what he did. He was burning or killing Catholic priests, along with Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and all the usual targets. The only people he didn't go after for some reason are witches. I don't know why he didn't do that, but Mm -hmm. he went after all the usual suspects. And that was in, you know, it wasn't in my lifetime, but it was certainly in my parents' lifetime. So so you would definitely say that one of the aspects of your book that is really important, why it's so timely, is because of you know, the persecution of the other and persecuting people because we're different or we don't understand them or fear-mongering for a greater political purpose, I think. Right. And it's going on right now. You can turn on the TV and you can watch it happening right in front of you. You know? Yeah, I think that I, I think that that's shocking. Uh, Before I let you go, what what are you working on next? What's your next project? Well, I have another book coming out uh, August of 2019. Um, It's being edited right now by the publisher. And it's an herbal. uh, It's called The Sacred Herbs of Samhain. Samhain is the old Celtic word uh, for Halloween. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, sacred herbs to to contact the dead. And um, these are historically used plants uh, used in in Europe uh, in many different cultures, you know. 
everything from the Celts to the Romans to the Greeks. But that's coming out in the summer. And then the one I'm working on now, uh, and that's what I'll be doing all winter, is another herbal about the herbs of uh, Beltane or May, May Day. So it'll be about herbs of the spring. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. That's fantastic. Are you, are you going to work on another um, uh, no, uh, a fiction novel? I don't know. <laughs> it all depends. I mean, I just went to Ireland this summer, and I was hoping that some inspiration would drop on my head and force me to write a novel, but I ended up paying more attention to the plants uh, in Ireland this time, and what was happening, I mean, Mm. I've been there a number of times, but this time it was all about the trees and the herbs, and I saw things, I don't know, it's like a veil was ripped from my eyes. Uh, I I just saw how the landscape was denuded, and Ireland is supposed to be covered with trees, and it's not. It's bare, and that's because of, uh, well, it started in the Neolithic with the Neolithic farmers, but when the English took over and colonized the island, they stripped the place. They cut trees, and... Um, when I, it's like it's, I saw that and it was pretty shocking because everywhere I went, I was in the West primarily and mm. just gorgeous landscapes, but no trees bare, you know, and I looked at that and I could see, oh, this is supposed to be oak forest, you know, this is supposed to be covered with oaks and bare. And that's kind of shocking, but oh. that's what happened. So no novel has, has hit me in the face yet. <laughs> Maybe some, you know, some soon, maybe soon. You never know. Anyway, I, I would like to thank my, my special guest, uh, um, Ellen Everett Hopman, and you can find uh, her book, The Real Witches of New England, History, Lore, and the Modern Practice um, on Amazon. We're going to have a link to it on uh, our website, Fedora. Um, metaphysicalpodcast.com and this is the episode let me double check here this is episode 94 and we will definitely have a, have links to you and your website and your book and um, I just want to thank you for being a, a, just an incredible guest and this has been such an incredible history lesson for the for the past um, hour or so and uh, it, would, do you have any last words that you'd like to share with us before we let you go? Well, I just want to wish everybody all the blessings of Halloween, which is Salon, um, which is the festival when we honor the ancestors. And it's not supposed to be ooky spooky. It's literally about honoring your ancestors. So set a place at the table for them. Light a candle for them. You can leave little notes for them and um, put some food out for them and keep the spirits happy and blessings of This has been the Metaphysical Connection podcast from the Fedora Chronicles Network. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or Player FM. You can find our podcast via your Apple, Android, or Windows devices using those services and more. If your favorite podcast service or program doesn't feature us, let us know by shooting us an email via info at thefedorachronicles.com. You can be a part of the metaphysical connection between shows by joining us on our social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook by going to our metaphysical connection group and following us on Twitter at physics laxative. Most importantly, you can support the show by hitting the Patreon button on all of our show pages, metaphysicalpodcast.com. Patreons of the show get specials such as getting the podcast a day before the rest of the audience, heads up about future episodes and other exclusives. Want some Metaphysical Connection swag of your own? Get your own damn Metaphysical Connection coffee mugs, t-shirts, keychains, and barbecue aprons at our Zazzle page. 
My house is full of them. Yours should be too. Find them at www.zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor, the Trinity Whip Company. Traditionally made kangaroo whips, top quality craftsmanship, in form as well as function. Handcrafted by Blake Brunning. Find his products at www.trinitywhipco.com. This is Carol Fisk thanking you for listening and signing off. Until next time, keep your chin up and your bra, excuse me, fedora on.